We're going to continue our series in the book of Revelation, looking at the seven churches in Revelation. And this morning, we look at the church in Smyrna. If you don't have a Bible in your worship folder, you'll find the sermon listening guide, and it has the scripture printed for you so that you can follow along. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let me just remind you what we're in the midst of here. This is a study on the seven churches, but uh, chapter one really sets up the context of this whole study. When it describes Jesus Christ walking amongst the lampstands, And he uses the imagery of lampstands to describe the church. And he does that very purposefully. As I said last week, uh, the imagery in Revelation is not up for debate as to what it means. It comes from the Old Testament. It's Old Testament imagery that is uh, illumined and brought to life. And the lampstand falls in that category. The lampstand was what uh, was in the tabernacle to light the tabernacle, symbolizing God's presence and light in a broken world. And the priests had to take care of the lampstands. Every morning they would go and they would put fresh oil in the lamps. They would trim the wicks so that the lampstands would burn brightly. And now we have in Revelation, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, walking among the lampstands, among the churches, adding fresh oil, trimming the wicks so that the church burns brightly. And that imagery also implies something very important. This study of the churches is not just an internal thing to make us get along better. Yet certainly that's part of it. But it is that the church is to be light in a dark world. That the world's dark, it's broken. It needs hope. And the only hope of the world is the church. It's what the scriptures teach. And so Jesus is saying, I want you, Christ Church East, to burn brightly. And he's saying in the immediate context, I want you, Smyrna, church in Smyrna, to burn brightly. And so we asked the question, we asked that last week, because it is the question that frames up every one of the churches. And that is, how is the church to function as light in the darkness? And so we see here with the church in Smyrna, two ways that the church functions as light in the darkness. First, by enduring suffering for Christ and then second, by receiving comfort from Christ. So let's start with enduring suffering for Christ. Where was Smyrna? Well, it's located about 35 miles north of Ephesus, which was the church we looked at last week on the coast. It's, it's modern-day Izmir. It's located in Turkey uh, on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And Smyrna was a very prosperous town, booming economy, um, one of the more prosperous cities in in Asia Minor in its time. And that's important because what we're going to see here is that Christians were poor 
They were in poverty. That wasn't because the economy of Smyrna was struggling. It was a poor town and everybody was struggling to put food on the table. No, people were flourishing in this town, making tons of money. And yet we learned the Christians were poor. And we'll get to that in a second. So in this, in this letter to this church, Jesus takes note of their suffering. And he takes note of the various forms of their suffering. Right? And he's going to point out in this letter four ways that these believers in Smyrna were suffering. First, he says, note in verse 9, he says, I know your poverty. Now, why were the believers in Smyrna poor? Well, remember that we're dealing with an area that was under the control of Rome. And so emperor worship, Caesar's Lord, was the mantra of the day. That was the religion of the day. Caesar was God, you worshiped him. And for Christians, when they made a stand and said, we're not gonna worship Caesar, Jesus is Lord, they, were, they suffered, they were persecuted. And that played out in the in, in financial world, in Smyrna. Smyrna had actually been awarded um, a, a temple site for the emperor Tiberius as a worship place. You say, oh, what, what's the big deal there? I mean, think of it as... Uh, a city in the United States being awarded an NFL franchise. Right? That happened in Jacksonville at one point. What happens when that? Everything starts booming, right? Business, and, and it affects the financial status of the city, and that's what happened in Smyrna. They awarded Smyrna this temple site that was of worship of the emperor, and with it came business and, and all kinds of construction and, and the livelihood of the city. Much of the financial aspect of the city revolved around that. The problem was for the Christians who took a stand to say, we're not going to worship the emperor, most suspect that they got um, excluded from the trade guilds. Now, a trade guild was just an association of merchants or business people that controlled the, the practice of their trade in the city. Think uh, professional association today. And if you're a, a business and you're part of a professional association, there's a lot of benefits there, right? You get networked. Uh, you get exposure, you get marketing, all of that's involved. And so the Christians were excluded from that, which meant lost business, which meant not much business, which meant poverty. So that's why they were poor, because of that. Second, notice the, uh, another form of suffering. Jesus says in verse 9, I know, I know the slander you're enduring from the Jews who say they're Jews but are not. These are the same Jews same worldview of Jews that crucified Christ. In fact, in Smyrna, it was the Jews that took the lead in persecuting and slandering the Christians, partially because they just wanted to create distance from the Christians so they could still enjoy their perks under the Roman Empire because they received protection. And so they slandered them. They, they gossiped about them. They misrepresented them. They drug their names through the mud. Through the mud. They, they uh, destroyed their reputation. That This was happening to believers because they were taking a stand for Jesus and not bowing to the emperor. And then we move on to verse 10. Jesus describes another form of suffering. He says, the devil is about to throw you into prison. So there was imprisonment. Apostle Paul experienced a bunch of imprisonment. The apostles were thrown in prison a lot. We don't get that today in our culture, but there are parts of the world where pastors and Christians are thrown in prison because of their faith. So you've got poverty, you've got slander, you've got imprisonment, and then the final form of suffering that Jesus points out in this 
church in Smyrna is death in verse 10. Look what he says, be faithful unto death. Opposition to the gospel was so strong in Smyrna that martyrdom, which is simply the word that describes being killed for your faith in Christ, was a real possibility. And in fact, one of the more well-known Christian martyrs came out of this church in Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. He was a, he was a bishop. And I wanna just, I wanna read to you the exchange of what happened to Polycarp before he was martyred to get a picture of what was happening in this area. So if we understand Revelation to be written somewhere in the mid-90s AD, 95 AD or so, Polycarp was a member in the church at the time that the Revelation was written. So the letter gets distributed and he reads it. He reads this, be faithful unto death, okay? 115 AD, he, he becomes the bishop of Smyrna, meaning he becomes the pastor of the church. 156 AD, at the pleading of his congregation, he's asked, they tell him, you gotta leave town because they were coming to hunt him down. And he fled and they hunted him down. And as the officers were bringing him back to the city to be tried and eventually put to death, listen to this exchange that happens from a man who read the letter and decades later started to experience what he was warned about. Listen to this. As one of the officers was bringing him back to the city, he said, what harm can it do to sacrifice to the emperor? Polycarp refused. So he was brought into the amphitheater and he was put before the council who said, respect your years. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Swear and I will release you. Revile Christ. To which Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They replied, they persisted, swear by the genius of Caesar, I have wild beasts. If you will not change your mind, I will throw them to you. Polycarp replied, call them. In other words, bring it. And then as they're gathering wood for the pile, we read in history that Polycarp stood by the stake that he was burned alive on, and he asked not to be tied to it so that he would stand there voluntarily. And then this is what he prayed. Oh, Lord, almighty God, the father of your beloved son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you. Listen to this. I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. And the history tells us that they lit the fire and because it was blowing, the wind was blowing so much, it was kind of blowing away from him, which prolonged the agony. And finally, one of the soldiers just thrust a spear into him because it was going on for so long. Jesus experienced every one of these forms of suffering that he is describing to the people in Smyrna. Poverty, slander, imprisonment, death. And so what he's saying is he's turning around and saying to the, the believers in Smyrna, I want you to suffer the same thing. Now, one, this is not a popular sermon to preach. In a, in a culture of relative comfort and ease and relative to the rest of the world, we are very comfortable 
and there is ease. In a, in a culture where the health and wealth gospel is alive, not just here, but around parts of the world, you heard it at the missions conference, the perspective that suffering is a call and not an option has been lost. And yet the scriptures are very clear that every believer is called to suffer. 2 Corinthians 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then we read in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then Jesus himself in John 15, 20, as he's speaking to his disciples, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so what we learn in scripture is that suffering is not an option for believers, that suffering is a call. It's a call and it's difficult but what I want you to see, especially in Philippians 1.29, and this is amazing, is that faith and suffering are seen as twin privileges of the gospel. So we've looked at the how of suffering, poverty, slander, imprisonment, death, the what of suffering, that you're called to it. But why? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Why does Jesus call me to suffer? Why? You say, well, maybe it's just exemplary, meaning if I just, if I suffer, I give people an example of Jesus and I show them Jesus. That's certainly part of it, but it goes much deeper, much deeper. Colossians 1.24 says this, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Now, there's, there's two things in this verse you need to think about. One is, Paul says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You go, wait a minute. Does that mean that Jesus' sufferings and death on the cross was not enough to accomplish salvation? No, that's not what it means. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection completely accomplished salvation. What it does mean is that suffering is the means by which the gospel advances. So it's Jesus' purpose, the Father's purpose, that his gospel would advance through the world from person to person, heart to heart, nation to nation. And the way that happens is through suffering. What Jesus is saying is, listen to the church in Smyrna. I want you to suffer and carry on my earthly ministry. See, that's the reality is that Jesus' earthly ministry continues through his people. And it's a ministry of suffering and sacrifice that advances the gospel. The second word in Colossians 1, 24 and 25 that you have to take note of is stewardship. What Jesus is saying is that suffering is all about stewardship. If it is the means by which the gospel advances, then he calls you to steward it 
as the gospel is advancing. I want you to imagine you have a, a couple friend. You have friends that they're a married couple. They've got children. They're coming up on their wedding anniversary. And so they ask you to watch their children while they're gone for the weekend and join some time away. They have four children. Five, three, two, and one. You're all shaking your heads going, that is a nightmare. You say, yes, absolutely. We want you to get away for the weekend. They leave Friday, they come back Sunday night. By Saturday night, you're done. You and your spouse are done. Stick a fork, right? You've cleaned up enough throw up. You've changed enough dirty diapers. You have broken up enough fights. You're like, we're done. So you have a great idea. You say to your spouse, listen, they got a five-year-old. He's pretty mature. Let's go watch a movie tonight for three hours and leave these four kids at the house. We'll come back afterwards. Of course not. You would never do that, right? These children don't belong to you, but you've been asked to steward them. And these children, though difficult, are precious and valuable. And so you steward them no matter how hard it gets. That's what God calls you to in suffering. He says, I've chosen you to bear this suffering. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And I've given it to you to bear it so that my gospel can advance in the world. And he looks at you and he says, will you steward it for me? Will you steward this suffering for me, for the advance of my gospel, for the advance of my glory? Suffering is about stewardship. It's not easy. In fact, it's a hard message to hear, isn't it? Especially when, I, and I know some of you have suffered deeply. It's not easy. In fact, the believers in Smyrna, they could have gotten rich quickly had they chosen to dishonor Christ and worship the emperor. They could have confessed Caesar is Lord and immediately been in the trade guilds and been rich and comfortable and made lots of money. It would have been easy. They could have avoided the slander and the misrepresentation by just simply saying, okay, Caesar's Lord. And the same is true for us. Some of you may have a great opportunity to make lots of money by dishonoring Christ through a shady business deal or by hiding your faith in the workplace. Or some of you could get popular really quick at your school or in your social circles by dishonoring Christ through some bit of immoral living or immoral talk. Just like that. You could become popular. Or parents, your life could get really comfortable parents of young toddlers could get really comfortable if you dishonored Christ and just neglected your responsibility to raise and nurture your children. 
it's difficult. You know, on one hand, you don't choose your suffering. God's sovereign over it. On the other hand, you are in control of your suffering because you can avoid suffering by compromising. You can avoid suffering by standing down on Christ. So the question becomes, where do you get the power not to compromise? Where do you get the power to stand firm in Christ when there's something really good that would be really easy to get really quickly to just say no to Christ? Where do you get the power to do that, the strength to do that? That brings us to our second point, and that is receiving comfort from Christ. That Jesus, although he lays down a very hard command to these believers in Smyrna, that I want you to suffer, you're called to suffering. But then he says, I'm not leaving you on your own. I'm gonna give you great comfort and empowerment to do this. And there's three ways in this letter that he speaks of his comfort and his power that he gives. Number one is that he knows your suffering. Verse nine, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. The word for tribulation here means it's, a, it's the word that speaks of affliction. It's the general word that speaks of trouble. It refers to anything right now in your life that is bringing stress because of the brokenness of the world. That's tribulation. And notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, I see your trouble. He says, I know your trouble. And there's a big difference there. Isaiah 53 Three and four say it this way. He, Jesus, the Messiah to come, was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Carried our sorrows. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. What's your greatest need in the midst of suffering? What's, what's one of the greatest needs that you have? It's to not do it alone. It's to have somebody understand what you're going through, to bear it with you. And what we learn here is that Jesus says, yes, he's the best confidant you could ever have in suffering. The best confidant you could ever have, he can bring peace and relief like no one else can. It was from her prison cell in Switzerland that the, the daughter of William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, it was in her prison cell where she was there for her faith in Christ that she wrote a number of hymns, and one of them is particularly striking for what we're talking about this morning. Listen to what she said in this prison cell. Best beloved of my soul, I am here alone with thee. And my prison is a heaven since thou sharest it with me. That Jesus knows your suffering and he shares it with you. Undoubtedly, every one of you have seen this dynamic, either maybe on the news or maybe personally you've seen it happen where a, a young child or a teenager or someone young gets cancer and they start chemotherapy, and they lose their hair. And what, what happens sometimes? The family and close friends will shave their heads, right? Why do they do that? 
It's to identify with the suffering. It's to share and divide the burden and the sorrow. But what's interesting is that those that do that only share a minor consequence of the suffering, which is a, a, a losing your hair and, and being self-conscious in public places. Jesus doesn't just share in the consequence of your suffering. He shares in the cancer itself. He, he bears it with you. He shares it with you. He knows it. And so number one, where's the comfort and the power to not compromise and to stand firm and to be faithful unto death, as Jesus says in this letter, is to know that he knows your suffering. Second, the second comfort and empowerment is he is purposeful. He's purposeful. Look at verse 10. It says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. First of all, I want you to see here the defined period of suffering. Jesus says it's gonna be 10 days. Now, the number 10 has significance in Revelation. It's the meaning of fullness in the decimal system. It's, it, is a, it means completion. In other words, this suffering that you're gonna go through is gonna be complete, not too short, not too long. Jesus is saying, I am in control. It's what we read in, in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus is foretelling of Peter's denial and he says to Peter, uh, Peter, Peter, this is verse 31 of Luke 22, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know what Jesus is saying to Peter? You're about to get sifted. But you're gonna return. Why? Because I am author and Lord over your suffering. I'm in complete control. What we learn here is that the timing and the circumstances of your suffering is not in the devil's hands. It's not in the world's hands. It's not in your employer's hands, nor in sin's hands or evil's hands. The timing and circumstances surrounding your suffering and your pain and your affliction are in the hands of Jesus Christ. That he is in complete control. And in that season of suffering, he says, I have great purpose in it. Notice what he says in this letter, that you may be tested, that you may be tested. Satan tempts to destroy, God tests to refine. The picture we see here with testing is that of gold being refined in the fire. You heat gold up and the impurities, the dross rises to the top, they skim it off and what's left is pure gold. The fires of affliction, of suffering, of persecution are what God uses to purge your faith, to purify it, to strengthen your character. That he has great purpose in it. And here's the other key, and this ties into stewardship. It's not just for your own refinement. A lot of times we get very narrow with our suffering and go, what is God doing in me? He's doing something in you, but he's doing something in someone else through your suffering. 
that your suffering is not just about you and your refinement, someone else's refinement is at stake. The gospel's advancing, remember, through suffering. Give, a, I think, a pretty relevant example here at Christ Church East. Let me speak to young moms for a second of young toddlers, babies and young toddlers. Some of you feel like your life has come to an end. Uh, Some of you are exhausted. You feel like a failure. You feel underappreciated, unappreciated. You feel like there's no progress being made. That your child's gonna be in the same condition 10 years from now that he is now. You feel helpless. I'm trying to define some of the stuff that I know young moms feel. And here's the reality behind it. You're experiencing affliction, tribulation as it's defined here. But it's not in vain that you're suffering and you're sacrificing for the sanctification of your child. And it's a long haul. That you're suffering and sacrificing for the spiritual growth and nurture of your child. That every moment that you feel like you're giving a piece of your life away, every one of those moments is a deposit in the piggy bank of spiritual growth and nurture of this child. Jesus never wastes pain. He never wastes pain. Every drop of pain that you and I experience in his economy has great purpose for you and for those around you. And that's what stewarding suffering is all about. Finally, what's the comfort and the power that Jesus gives so that you can stand firm and avoid compromising and backing down and stand firm in Christ and be faithful unto death. The third is that he's victorious. Look at verse eight. It's the, it's the verse that Jesus opens this letter with. Look what he says in verse eight. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus knows what he's about to tell these believers in Smyrna of their suffering, some of them going to die, being imprisoned. And, and at, the, at the top of the letter, which is the comfort and the power to be faithful, is his resurrection. That he was dead and that he came to life. That on the other side of your suffering is resurrection. And he goes on in verse, into verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Into verse 11, to the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What does that mean? The first death is your physical death, right? Which everyone in this room one day will face. The second death is your eternal separation from God, which not everyone in this room will face. In fact, everyone who trusts Jesus Christ, scriptures say, will avoid the second death, which is eternity away from God in hell. And so what he's saying to these believers is, you've trusted me, you you will escape the second death, that you have life. No matter if your first life is taken away and you experience the first death, that I'm giving you the crown of life. And I love Jesus' words where he says, I'm the first and the last. You know what he means in the context of what he's telling these people? 
I'm the first, which means I have the first word on your suffering. Nothing comes into your life unless it first comes through my hands. And then he says, and guess what? I've got the last word on your suffering. And you know what the last word is on your suffering? Resurrection. Life. That it's yours in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8 that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Jesus uses the crown of life here. It can also be called the victor's crown. It, it conjures up imagery of a race, which was very common in Smyrna and lots of games in the amphitheater and competition. He con- conjures up the race and, and he does that with purpose because life in a broken world means pouring yourself out, giving of yourself to the point of feeling like you have nothing left exhausting yourself, giving, giving, enduring suffering, enduring hardship. And and what Jesus says is, guess what's waiting for you at the finish line? You know what's waiting for you? You can't even imagine what's waiting for you. It's not even worth comparing to the glory that's gonna be revealed, not out there, in us. The life that is gonna come in glory to you. You see, you don't have to preserve your life here. You don't have to preserve your life because Jesus says, I've got a new one for you that I purchased with my own blood. Jim Elliott was a great and somewhat famous missionary. Some of you are maybe familiar with him. But Jim Elliott was a man who died taking the gospel to uh, the Aka hostile, Aka Indian tribe in Ecuador. And there's a quote I'm gonna close with that is powerful, but before I get there, I just want to set up what he was faced with. Right? He, he wanted, he and some companions wanted to take the gospel to this hostile tribe, the good news of Jesus. And, and the night before, I imagine, because they had to cross over a berm to get down into this camp. And the night before, here's what Jim Elliott was faced with. He wasn't faced with success or failure. It wasn't, I hope we succeed and they come to Christ and repent. And failure is if I die. No, for him, there was nothing but victory awaiting for him on the other side of that berm. If the Aka Indians repented and converted to Jesus Christ, victory. If he got killed, victory. Why? because Jesus had a glorious life waiting for him. Whatever ended up to his first life and the first death if he he experienced it. And so Jim Elliott had a number of quotes in his writings and one of them was this and it defines what he did when he crossed that berm. He said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, suffering is hard, and there are some in this room this morning that are 
on the verge of maybe even breakdown and disaster, and we take your promises that we read earlier, a bruised reed you will not break. We take great comfort knowing that Jesus, you know our suffering intimately because you bore it for us and now you ask us to bear it with you. Father, there are those that are maybe struggling to understand the purpose behind their suffering. Would you, Spirit, remind them that there is great purpose even when they can't see it. Jesus, thank you for the promise that you never waste pain. You never waste pain. If you know our suffering, you're, you're purposeful in it. And, and Lord, would you compel our hearts this morning to be overwhelmed with the, the victory that we have in you, Jesus. That though we will one day die, that in you, Jesus, we will escape the second death, that there is life waiting for us. And because of that, of the glorious life that we can't even imagine that awaits for us in eternity, would you enable us, empower us to steward our suffering this morning, whatever form we find ourselves in, for your glory, for the advance of your gospel, that we wouldn't turn from it, that we wouldn't avoid it. Fathers, we come to the table now. Would you take this meal and use it to strengthen us so that we can stand firm and be faithful, be faithful unto death. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.